Thank you very much. I hope everybody can hear me properly. Uh, it is truly marvelous to be here today. Uh, Mershon has an enormous reputation as a place of creativity and thinking about international affairs, international relations, global change. It's nice to be in a place where uh, interdisciplinarity is, is practiced uh, and it's part of the culture, uh, something that is far too rare, I think, in our institutions of higher learning in much of the Western world. Uh, my work, as you've heard, is fundamentally interdisciplinary. Uh, there are dangers, dangers and advantages to that. I try to uh, bring ideas together from many different fields to comprehend the strange things that we seem to be seeing happening around us in the world. Today, uh, I'm going to take this as an opportunity to comment on a theoretical project that has occupied me off and on for the last half dozen years or so. It's a, a theoretical perspective that I begin to elaborate in my latest book, The Upside of Down. In some respects, it's still quite preliminary. So I really welcome this opportunity to engage in a conversation with you about it, find out what seems to appeal, perhaps find out where its weak points are. It's motivated, this project is motivated by a deep concern about the state of the world and the trajectory that our world seems to be on. A deep concern that I think many of us share. I mean, I, I often get up and read the paper in the morning and do research on climate change and energy issues and other changes that we see around the world, and I wonder why we aren't all just shoveling and a lot of SSRIs every morning, you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, <laughs> because uh, this is truly an anxiety-producing condition that we have cre created, I think, for humankind. I've been guided by an intuition that things can't continue along the existing trajectory, and that large-scale, to use something of a euphemism, system discontinuities are in the offing, and they're becoming more likely. It is a euphemism. I mean, we're really talking about large-scale breakdowns or collapse, and this notion of collapse has received a great deal of attention, especially with the advent of Jared Diamond's book with that title a couple of years ago. That book struck a chord with many people, I have to admit. When I saw that it was coming out, being in, in the midst of writing The Upside of Down, actually putting it, putting it to bed, I was enormously discouraged because uh, here, I felt that in many ways many of the issues that I had hoped to discuss and I was discussing in my book, The Upside of Down, were of course being discussed by Jared Diamond. But there's a lot of space, intellectual space, and policy space for exploration of this problem and this issue of collapse. It struck a chord, Diamond's book, was an instant bestseller, uh, and, and people are interested in this issue of collapse. It seems to be an argument or a prospect for humankind that shouldn't be dismissed and needs to be thought about and studied in some detail. So my projects, central questions, the project that I'm elaborating on today, are as follows. 
Is the collapse of national and even global society, broadly defined, possible? If it is possible, what would be the causes of this collapse? Thirdly, given these putative causes, is the probability of collapse rising? And finally, fourthly, and if collapse does occur, what might it look like? I've been trying to develop a rudimentary theory derived from the work of several researchers that will help me answer these four questions. The starting point, I think, has to be some clearer, more precise understanding of what the outcome is that we're trying to understand or explain or perhaps even predict. What is this thing, this dependent variable that we call collapse? Now here I adopt a definition. I adopted this independently of Diamond, but because it's one that's quite, uh, quite widespread in much of the literature on this issue, I adopt the definition that collapse is a situation or a circumstance of radical, severe, and possibly sudden simplification of a society, of its institutions, of its technologies, of its social relations, and of its patterns of personal and social behavior. Simple principles of behavior, for example, such as might make, makes right, might become dominant in a circumstance of collapse. One of the examples, of course, that's studied frequently by uh, theorists thinking about societal collapse is the decline or the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. And it's now been established, I think, pretty well definitively that there was a, an extraordinary simplification of Western Roman society during that collapse period, which proceeded from about the middle of the fourth century uh, through the fifth century. All aspects of, of life, institutional arrangements, social discourse, commerce, and technologies became simplified. And I think we can operationalize this notion of decomplexification or simplification by perhaps, I haven't done this, but I think we can, we can assume it's possible, by thinking about the reduced information content of institutions, technologies, social relations, and patterns of behavior, or using something, uh, an idea that's well-established in complexity theory, some notion of reduced algorithmic complexity. Basically, how, how long is the algorithm that's required to produce behavior that would replicate the behavior of, say, the institution or the society or the, the system element that you're looking at. And I, I think that we can, we can assume that in a collapse situation that algorithmic complexity, the sets of rules, decision rules, the, the algorithm by which you try to represent the behavior of the system would be dramatically reduced in length. Now, I think it's important to distinguish the kind of collapse that I'm talking about from state collapse. There are many existing theories of collapse. 
But they're not so much theories of societal collapse as of polity collapse. These are theories of state collapse or polity collapse, such as those proposed by Jack Goldstone, Alexander Meutel, Peter Turchin, in his wonderful book, Historical Dynamics, that came out from Princeton about two years ago. They tend to emphasize socio-political and socio-economic causes of polity collapse. And they're heavily influenced by theories of revolution and theories of civil violence. Now, Goldstone is a bit of an exception in this regard because he puts demographic change in his model as a primary causal variable. But still, the consequences for Goldstone are, and, and, the, and the mechanisms by which demographic change is, has, has its consequence are, are sociopolitical and socioeconomic. Theories of societal collapse, on the other hand, are, I think, much less numerous and much less well-developed. They tend to emphasize what I refer to as material causes. Now, I'm not using material, the concept material here, the way, for instance, most IR theorists would use it or the way, for instance, neo-Marxists would use it. By material, I mean resource flows, energy flows. Many of these theories also emphasize technical characteristics or technological characteristics of the societies as causes of collapse, such as rising complexity and information flows. So there's a, there's a distinction, and I'm being quite quick and dirty here in distinguishing between these two bodies of work. But the latter body that really focuses on societal collapse, I think, tends to assume that the causes, and you see this, for instance, in Diamond's book, of societal collapse are material in the sense of environmental degradation, resource scarcity, demographic stress. Ultimately, many of these arguments are quite neo-Malthusian or technical in terms of focuses on, for instance, uh, declining in information flows, ability to coordinate using information networks, uh, rising or excessive complexity. Now, many of these latter theories of societal collapse are essentially monocausal. They rely heavily on evidence from ancient societies without, I believe, fully justifying the relevance of these ancient cases to the current era. And as a result, I think that many of these arguments radically underestimate the adaptability of modern societies. And I think Jared Diamond's book is a good example. Now, I have uh, great ex respect for what Jared Diamond has accomplished. Probably a fairly healthy dose of envy, too. Uh, although, although both his book and my book were for a while on the bestseller list in Canada. I can't say that, unfortunately, about the United States. Um, his argument is essentially Malthusian. It is essentially a resource scarcity hypothesis. Uh, he does some hand-waving at the beginning of the book saying, you know, I started out thinking that societal collapse was always caused by environmental factors, and I realized that it was a more complicated story, and so I'm going to introduce this five-factor theory. And the five factors, for anybody who has any theoretical 
uh, tools available to them at all just don't fit together. They're just completely apples and oranges. And, and, uh, and then essentially what he does in much of the rest of the book is he goes on to elaborate a monocausal environmental theory about societal collapse. Uh, he emphasizes uh, ancient societies, such as the Mayan civilization, Mesoamerica, Easter Island civilization, the Greenland Norse civilization. These are wonderful stories, and he's a marvelous storyteller. But I kept asking myself, in fact, I went right to the end of the book to find out if he answered this question. What's the relevance of these stories to the current era? Because the standard skeptical response is that we are today historically exceptional. We have things available to us like science, modern science, modern democracy, and modern capitalism that allow our societies, especially Western societies, to be vastly more adaptive than any ancient society. And he doesn't really effectively address that challenge. And yet it's the first one anybody who's been thinking about this issue for a long time will raise. So in looking at the corpus of theory out there on societal collapse, and I'll talk about some more of it in a moment because, because uh, some of it I have found useful, but overall I haven't found much of this much of this material terribly helpful. I have an intuition, again, that material and technological conditions are critically important to the question of societal collapse. But I need, I believe we need to move beyond, excuse me, and I believe we need to move beyond today's circumscribed theories of polity collapse to investigate the potential for more generalized societal collapse. But the available theory to address this question is extremely thin on the ground. So rather than engaging in a deductive exercise by starting with existing theories of societal collapse, most of which are developed for a very different world, most of them are developed to understand the collapse of agrarian societies. Peter Turchin's book is a good example. And then trying to use this existing theory to develop hypotheses about the nature and likelihood of contemporary collapse. Instead, I started with the features and characteristics of the contemporary world that strike me as particularly notable and unusual, as particularly unprecedented and potentially dangerous. Then I asked what theories or components of theories or combinations of com components of theories, including those from domains of research far beyond political science, such as ecology and complex systems theory, seem to make sense of what we're seeing in the world today and can help us understand the implications of what we're seeing in the world today. So what are these key characteristics? I've generated quite a list, but I'll put up just four here if... I can get this working. There we go. There are actually five. Five notable characteristics of the contemporary world, although four are in a distinct category, as I'll explain in a moment. Multiple stresses, macro perturbations of natural systems, an impending energy transition, rising connectivity and complexity, and what I call a power shift. Let me say just a few words about each of these, and then I'll talk about some of them in some more detail. These are the things that 
that are preying on my mind, in a sense, when I look at the world to, around us today. These are the things that really, to use the vernacular, scare the bejeebers out of me. Uh, and I think people should be very concerned about them in general. And what I'm trying to do in my, in my project, my theoretical project, is bring these together, integrate them into some general theoretical understanding of what our situation is. The first is the occurrence of multiple stresses simultaneously. These are stresses, demographic, economic, energy stresses, societal stresses that are increasing in force, that are simultaneous and convergent, that act as slow creep stresses. In other words, the force increases incrementally and largely subliminally. In other words, uh, under the surface of the day-to-day affairs of global society. We just don't really see them very much. But uh, you can, in some sense, you can say enormous potential energy is building up under the surface of global systems. In fact, in my latest book, I introduce metaphorically the idea of, of tectonic stresses. I draw quite directly on a notion of earthquakes because I like this idea that things can look normal on the surface while enormous potential energy is building up under the surface as, as stresses build. And the key thing here, which I think is neglected by many commentators, policymakers, and scholars, is that there's a whole bunch of stuff happening simultaneously. And any one of these problems might be a deal breaker for humanity. The real issue, though, is that it's all happening at the same time. And, and there are important potential interaction effects, as I'll explain, between some of these problems and uh, reinforcing effects between these problems. So the first is multiple stresses. The second is macro perturbations of natural systems. Human beings are actors on the scale of nature itself now on the planet. We move on an annual basis ten times as much dirt and rock on the surface of the planet as is moved by nature in all of its actions of wind and water around the planet. Uh, we have increased the concentrations of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by a third. We've doubled the amount of reactive nitrogen in the atmosphere by, uh, we've doubled it in the last, uh, last 100 years, largely through our agricultural practices. We are major actors, and we are seeing, as a result, major consequences. For the first time in the existence of our species, we are able to change macro characteristics of the flows of uh, basic elements such as carbon, sulfur, and nitrogen, and macro characteristics of energy flows on the planet. And that, of course, is the issue with climate change, which I'll come back to in a moment. An impending energy transition. I'll discuss this more in a moment, too. We are on the cusp of a transition from a petroleum age to a post-petroleum age. And in an important respect, that means that energy is going to become much more expensive. Rising connectivity and complexity. This is a calculation that I've wanted to do for some time, but sort of a ballpark. We are probably able now to move, uh, in terms of quantities of information around the planet, hundreds of millions fold more information per unit time than we could even 30 years ago. The density of connections among us, the ability to communicate vast quantities of information has soared. And then finally, a power shift. This is the movement of power 
of all kinds down the social hierarchy from large organizations and institutions to smaller groups and subgroups, even individuals, and the most important from the perspective I'm developing here, kind of power that, that, uh, uh, that could be disruptive is the power to kill and destroy. In short, it's becoming, as technology changes, it's become much easier for small groups of people to kill large numbers of people very quickly. Now, the last four of these elements you see here can really be characterized as stresses, and I'm going to talk a bit more about them now. I'll talk about climate change, energy. I'll say a few words about rising connectivity and the power shift. This is a statement from the recent Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, report number one, working group one. Warming of the climate system is unequivocal, as is now evident from observations of increases in global average air and ocean temperatures, widespread melting of snow and ice, and rising global mean sea levels. I, I want to emphasize that the recent IPCC reports do not reflect the latest science. The guillotine on science, climate science, for those reports came down in around mid-2005. <coughs> And there have been two years of development since then. And those developments have, uh, have been, in many cases, uh, at the pessimistic end, have produced results, scientific findings, at the pessimistic end of the range of predictions that had been incorporated into the IPCC, uh, in, into the IPCC scenarios and reports. Uh, there has been, of course, a surge of interest in climate change in the last year or so. In Canada, it's the number one issue in the polls. It could well determine the fate of the next government. It's moved up the polls dramatically in most Western countries. Why is this happening? Certainly Al Gore has been a factor. Uh, the Stern report on the economic consequences of climate change that was issued uh, last fall, definitely also a factor. Uh, the palpable change that many of us can see in climate outside our windows where we have looked at the weather, for instance, this past winter and realized that this is something outside the experience that we've had within our own lifetimes. Just to give you a sense for what we saw, these are four NASA-derived, NASA satellite-derived maps of anomalous warming for November, December, January, and February last year, the uh, darker the red moving towards brown, the higher the temperatures. Across the bottom, you can see we go from minus 8 degrees Celsius to plus 8.6 degrees Celsius. Uh, here we have uh, <clears throat> South America, North America, Asia over here. This is against uh, a baseline average temperature uh, from 1951 to 1980. So what you're seeing is the anomalous warming uh, against the baseline from 1951 to 1980. And here are the four months. And that's February. Uh, it makes a difference when people can actually see things in a tangible way. And, uh, and the conclusions of the IPCC report is that it's extremely unlikely, the probability is less than 5%, probably substantially less than 5%, that we would be seeing these changes 
in the absence of anthropogenic uh, climate forcing. Uh, human, in other words, human beings are uh, probably the primary cause of the warming we've seen in the last 40 years. What we've seen in the last few months is particularly striking, and it, it relates to the warming, just to go back again, the warming that we're seeing in the north. It appears, and this is one of the reasons for increased concern by climate scientists in recent months and over the last two years or so, their perspective has really shifted from one of regarding climate change as a matter of, of grave concern to one now thinking of it as a matter of, of enormous urgency. And I'm hearing this from a lot of climate scientists from around the world, people I work with and talk to pretty regularly. And one of the key things is concern about feedbacks, that positive feedbacks may be starting to develop in the climate system. There are probably 12 to 15 major feedbacks that we know about or speculate about. Some of them we've modeled fairly well. Some of them uh, we don't have a complete understanding of, especially those relating to the carbon cycle. Uh, one that we do understand is this, the ice albedo feedback. And this is why we're seeing much more rapid warming at the poles, where you get a melting of ice, opening up ocean water that absorbs about 80% more solar radiation than water covered by ice. The ocean warms. In the fall, it releases that heat to the atmosphere, which uh, prevents the ice from recovering properly over the winter. And then you get more melting in the following year. So you get a, a positive feedback loop. There are a number of feedback loops that scientists are concerned about, including uh, the possibility of melting of permafrost. In fact, permafrost is melting now widely in Alaska, Siberia, and northern Canada, releasing potentially large quantities of methane. Methane is a much more powerful greenhouse gas than CO2. Uh, the destruction of the Canadian boreal forest from pine bark beetle infestation. Most people down here don't realize, but the whole central part of British Columbia, the pine forests in British Columbia, are dead now because of pine bark beetle infestation. And that's largely driven by climate change because you get much larger populations of pine bark beetle. They have, uh, they have two life cycles in the summer and lower mortality in the winter as temperatures warm. Last summer, but not this summer, large clouds of pine bark beetle came across the Rockies into the boreal forest areas of, the, of Alberta. If we lose the boreal forest uh, and it's killed, it would be susceptible to burning and the release of potentially billions of tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Other positive feedbacks relate to the oceans. Concerns about uh, the declining ability of the ocean to absorb carbon dioxide. About 50% of all the CO2 we release right now is absorbed by the oceans. At some point, they will reach saturation. Also, warming temperatures and acidification of the oceans from higher concentrations of carbon dioxide both reduce the ability of oceans to absorb carbon dioxide. There's evidence just released last year that the Southern Ocean, which encircles Antarctica, is now reaching its saturation. So there real concerns about the possibility that we could pass a threshold, and I'll talk a bit more about this in a second, whereby we get self-reinforcing climate change that is essentially out of control. There's nothing that we can do about it at that point. Even if we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, the warming will continue. Just to show you a couple of things that you're probably aware, there's a really good report in the Science Times today about this. Uh, front page of the Science Times, but this is what we've seen in the Arctic. Uh, this past two months, we lost a third of the ice in the Arctic. Now, I should tell you how climate scientists are reacting to this. 
their jaws have dropped. People were saying, the IPCC report says, we won't lose Arctic ice uh, in the summertime in the Arctic until 2070. In the last two years, uh, that was reduced by a lot of Arctic scientists to 2040. Now they're talking about, and you'll see in the Science Times today, 2013, 2015, that we'll see complete elimination of Arctic ice within a decade in the summertime. So that's where we ended up in September, 4.12 million square kilometers. You can see how far off the trend line that is. And that illustrates the difference. That was the previous record low two years ago of Arctic ice. The magenta line is the average ice extent between 2000 between 1979 and 2000. This is where we were this past year. It's now starting to recover. Uh, uh, this is essentially a third of the Arctic ice, an area about uh, five times the size of Texas. And uh, ice had melted up to within five degrees of the North Pole. Something new is happening. We're probably close to some kind of nonlinear shift in the cryosphere in the northern part of the planet. What are we looking at in the future on climate change? Just four, three quick points. First of all, this is the most realistic projection of what we're going to see according to the IPCC. This is uh, warming up to here on the scale 7.5 degrees Celsius. We're seeing that kind of warming in the northern part of Canada. Again, much faster warming in the north. A lot of warming in, in the continental United States in the neighborhood of 4 to 4.5 degrees Celsius. Just to give you a sense for the degree of that warming, the total warming since the last ice age has been about five, the coldest period of the last ice age has been about five degrees Celsius. Uh, this future world in 2090 to 2099 would be radically different from what we live in today in terms of its, for instance, capacity to grow the food we need. We don't know exactly what the economic implications would be, but it's going to be, if it happens that way, it's going to be very different. The second point I want to make about the future, and I've mentioned this before, uh, is that we might actually be fairly close to a position of crossing a threshold at which we are in, in a situation of, of self-reinforcing climate change. Uh, this courtesy, this diagram is courtesy of David Wasdell in the UK, who works on feedbacks a lot. It's basically an energy landscape. If you want to uh, think in terms of landscapes where you have bowls of, at the bottom of the bowl is an energy minimum and an equilibrium. As we heat up the climate, we are approaching a cusp where we can either roll back down uh, by potentially uh, reducing carbon emissions or even re removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But if we go over this cusp, we'll be in a circumstance where we get accelerating climate change. This is his business-as-usual path. This is time up here. That's increase in global heating. And, uh, and this is his business-as-usual path. And notice that he says that Kyoto isn't going to get us any, anywhere close to where we need to be. And the last thing I'd like to say about, about uh, uh, climate change is that it's unlikely that we're going to see this as a linear process. It's not going to be a nice even 0.2, 0.3 degrees Celsius as we progress into the future through this century. Uh, instead, it's likely to come in sharp, sudden jumps. Why? Because that's what we see in the paleoclimatological record. These are data extracted from a Greenland ice core 
going back, giving us snow records going back uh, 10,500 to 13,000 years ago. Here we have basically snowfall rates uh, as recorded from those ice cores. You get higher snowfall when the atmosphere is warmer because it contains more water. That increase in snowfall rates is now understood by scientists to represent a 7 degrees Celsius warming in as little as 10 years. That's the end of the last ice age. It's called the end of the Younger Dryas cold event. We don't know exactly why that happened, but we see record of this change not just in the North Atlantic but around the planet. There was a reorganization, a wholesale reorganization of flows of energy between the poles and the Arctic, patterns of wind and ocean current movements around the planet more or less simultaneously. This is a system with multiple equilibria. We don't understand it completely, but it's likely if we keep forcing the system with, with uh, increased greenhouse gas emissions, that at some point it will start to shift to a new equilibrium. That's maybe what we're seeing in the Arctic right now. Let me say a little bit about energy. Uh, we are probably near our, the peak of global output of conventional oil, and so energy prices are going to rise sharply in coming decades. It's very interesting to see the shift in the conventional wisdom on this in just the last few months. Now, there's some of us who've been talking about this issue for a long time, and we've been largely dismissed as crackpots, peak oil theorists, peakies, you know, the wing, the wing nuts who uh, think that we're running out of oil. In the last six months, major reports from the National Petroleum Council in the United States and from uh, the International Energy Agency uh, in, uh, in Paris have both acknowledged that there are now very serious supply constraints when it comes to conventional oil in the world. Now, conventional oil provides 40% of the world's commercial energy and 95 to 98% of the world's transportation energy. It's the stuff that the planet's economy lit literally runs on. Uh, and we don't have a clear plan B for when its availability starts to decline. One thing that I want to emphasize, because I'll stress this uh, later at the end of my talk, is that producing energy costs energy. And this principle is best understood by the concept of energy return on investment, how much energy it takes you to produce energy. In the United States and Texas in the 1930s, uh, drillers got back about 100 barrels of oil for every barrel of oil they invested to drill down into the ground and pump oil out. Today, the energy return on investment for conventional oil in the United States is 17 to 1. The energy return on, on investment, or the EROI, for the tar sands in Alberta, which you guys uh, think widely is the fallback energy source when, for the United States when conventional oil starts to run out. A lot of Albertans think the same thing. Uh, the energy return on investment for the tar sands is 4 to 1. As we slide down that slope from 100 to 1 to 17 to 1 to 4 to 1 towards 1 to 1, we're using a larger and larger fraction of the capital and wealth in our economies simply to generate energy, and we've got less left over for everything else we want to do, including solve our increasingly difficult problems like climate change, a point that I'll come back to in a minute. We're entering a transition from a, a regime of abundant, high-quality, high EROI energy to one of abundant, mixed-quality, low EROI energy that's going to be characterized largely, eventually, by renewables such as solar and wind. Here's some interesting statistics on EROIs for fuel systems. Crude oil, as I indicated, is now in the United States around 20 to 1, 17 to 1 in the United States. 
Coal is very good at the moment, around 80 to 1, because of improvements in mining technologies. Corn ethanol, a crummy technology. You get about as much energy back as you put into it. Oil shale, same as tar sands, around 5 to 1, 4 to 1. Coal liquefaction, which is where we're going to be going, quite possibly, if we need uh, fuels, liquid fuels for our cars, you're getting an EROI of around 3 to 1 or 2 to 1. Now, peak oil theory basically says that in any oil-producing region, we have an oil discovery curve and an oil production curve. Uh, and, the, and the difference between the two peaks is 15 to 40 years. Say on the outside in the United States, it was about 40 years. The peak in oil discovery was in the 1930s, and the peak oil production was around 1970. And once production begins to decline, and that happens when you've produced about 50% of the oil in the oil-producing region, when you've pulled about 50% out of the ground, once that production begins to decline, it doesn't matter how much capital and technology you throw at the oil field, the decline doesn't reverse. And that's the evidence we've seen in about 50 different oil-producing regions in the world. These are the statistics we see for the planet as a whole, if you take the whole planet as an oil-producing region. Billions of barrels of oil equivalent going up to 60 across the bottom, 1900 to 2005 or so. This is oil discovery peaking in 1964 at around 60 billion barrels of oil declining. Since then, that reversal is the discovery of Alaska and the North Sea. Oil production or consumption increasing at around 2 to 3% a year, largely driven by China and India. The key thing, of course, is to notice the gap here, which now means that we're consuming on average about 30 billion barrels of oil and we're finding somewhere between 3 and 10 billion barrels on an annual basis. We can't do that forever. We're consuming, we're tapping the piggy bank, we're consuming oil we discovered a long time ago. Eventually this curve is going to peak and start to decline. The question is when. I thought I had another slide, sorry. The question is when. It turns out it doesn't actually matter whether, how much oil we have left on the planet. The, the, the peak oil theorists, and I include myself in that camp, think that we've probably consumed about half the oil on the planet, so we're pretty close to peak right about now. There's some indication, for instance, that the great Gawar oil field in Saudi Arabia has started to decline quite rapidly, and that produces about 4% of world oil. Um, the, the optimists, such as the United States Geological Survey, would say that we have twice as much oil on the planet Instead of one trillion barrels left, we have two trillion barrels left. It actually turns out that that, act, that pushes the peak out only 20 years or so. So sometime within the next 10, could be happening now, 10, 15, I think highly likelihood, perhaps if you want to be optimistic about the amount of oil left, say 25 years, we're going to see a peak in conventional oil production. And at that point, it largely, it largely depends on what the rapidity of decline of oil production is after that peak. We see in oil fields around the world and oil producing regions between 3% a year and up to 12% a year. The average seems to be about 8% a year. If it's 3%, we might be able to fill the gap between rising requirement for energy and declining conventional oil availability with unconventional sources of energy, such as tar sands oil. If it's 8 to 12% a year, it's going to be very difficult to fill that gap, and we're going to see much sharper and higher energy prices. Let's say a couple of words about complexity. I've already covered this point. Complexity has risen because of advances largely in information technology and because of 
performance improvements at the level of system units, that is, organizations, technologies, and people. These changes produce more complex networks with more nodes, a greater density of connections between nodes, and faster movement of material, energy, and information along these connections. I'll come back to the complexity and connectivity variable in just a moment. And then in terms of the power shift I was talking about, individuals and small groups are developing an immense capacity to kill and destroy. Uh, the endpoint of that technological trend is going to be reached when small groups of terrorists get hold of weapons of mass destruction. I don't think this is a matter of, of if. I really think it's a matter of when, especially if we're talking about radiological devices because they're relatively easy to make. But the issue of most concern, of course, to specialists like Graham Allison is uh, the possibility that terrorists will get hold of highly enriched uranium, which, as you probably know, once you've got it, it's quite easy to make a bomb. It was the Hiroshima gun-type device that used HEU. It was never tested before its use in Hiroshima because they knew that it was going to work. I teach my students every year how to do it on the assumption that they can't get hold of HEU. Uh, there's about 1,000 tons of highly enriched uranium in relatively insecure storage facilities in the world. Conservatively, assuming that people are really unskilled, if you have 100 kilograms of that material, you can build a bomb that will destroy the city in London, Manhattan, the southern part of Manhattan, uh, Moscow, Delhi, uh, uh, the, it, these, these centers of population in the world that uh, where there is um, that are, are detested by some groups and who are very interested in getting hold of these kinds of weapons. Uh, that ratio of 100 kilograms to 1,000 tons is about 1 to 10,000. That's a figure that most people can't grasp very readily. So I decided to represent it using this diagram. The dot at the top is the amount you would need to produce a bomb like that. And the rectangle of dots underneath is the amount that's in relatively insecure storage facilities in the world. I consider this a Murphy's Law problem. This is a leakage problem. We have to have a secure control of this material that's 99.99% perfect indefinitely into the future. And I don't know any human institution that works, works so well indefinitely. This is why people like Graham Allison and many others think that sooner or later, at least criminal networks will start to get hold of some of this material, especially if it continues to be produced in places like Pakistan. Let me come back to the theoretical exercise that I discussed at the beginning. I've now talked about these characteristics of the world, the stresses that we're facing. How do we make theoretical sense of this daunting combination of potentially harmful forces? My starting assumption is that societies are homeostatic systems. They deal with shock and exogenous stresses by implementing various negative feedback loops or cybernetic feedbacks to return the society to its original equilibrium. We've seen just a great example in the last couple of months with the intervention by central banks to stabilize the international financial system in the face of widespread fear from the prime, uh, subprime mortgage 
crisis. Now, collapse occurs, I think, when these stabilizing or coping mechanisms are overwhelmed. In other words, I use an overload model as a basic presumption of my theory, which implies a ratio between stress and coping capacity. Now, overload models actually have quite an honorable pedigree if you look at theorizing about social affairs. You can find them in functionalist, the functionalist sociology of Emile Durkheim and Talcott Parsons, in the systems theory of Ludwig von Bertalanffy and Norbert Wiener, and in information processing and computational theories of cognitive scientists and organizational theorists. In political science, Carl Deutsch developed a very clear overload theory in some of his early work. Of course, Sam Huntington did. And more recent writers, such as Alexander Meutel, have used the same kind of idea. It's actually all over the place when you start to look for it. My overload theory of societal collapse has three components that are borrowed from other researchers thinking about this issue. The first is convergent stresses. And here I, I rely a lot on the work that's been done by Jack Goldstone. Now Jack, as probably most of you know, uh, looks, has looked in particular at the effect of rapid population growth and demographic stress on societies. He then says that, that, and this is the important point, that rapid population growth has manifold effects, economic, sociological, institutional effects, and that those effects are channeled along parallel pathways through the society and affect multiple levels, produce multiple stresses at the levels of state, the state, especially state finances, elites, especially competition among elites, and the masses, especially in the form of mobilization of the masses. And it's the fact that all of those things are happening simultaneously and that a society is stressed simultaneously at multiple levels that ultimately contributes to state collapse. Goldstone was one of the first to show that state collapse occurs in situations of multiple stresses occurring simultaneously and affecting multiple social levels. But this can't be the whole story because he's only talking about one variable here. He's only talking about one component of the ratio. We need to think about what's limiting society's ability to cope. And that brings me at the second, in the terms of the second component of my theory, to the work by Joseph Tainter on the limits of complexity. And I followed Tainter's work for quite some time. Some of you may be familiar with it. His most important book is The Collapse of Complex Societies that came out in 1988. He's done a lot of work since then. His argument can be summed up quite simply, that societies tend to become more complex as they deal with their problems. There's a drought. Uh, a society in response to the drought, say an agricultural society, may develop uh, elaborate irrigation systems to move water from a relatively wet area to a relatively dry area. That irrigation system will be complex technologically. It will be complex institutionally and socially. But this complexity, and this is Tainter's next point, costs, and the currency is energy. More complex systems require larger flows of high-quality energy. 
And this is a generally important point, I think, that I use quite a bit in my research, that societies solve their more difficult problems by increasing their institutional and technological complexity. And that increase in institutional and technological complexity requires larger inputs of high-quality energy. And the most important point that Tainter makes is that investments in complexity eventually produce diminishing marginal returns because societies try first those solutions to their problems that give them the biggest return for the least cost. Now, when marginal benefits of increasing complexity fall to zero or even become negative, an expanding portion of a society's wealth is sucked into further boosting complexity, echoes of that EROI point I was making just a few moments ago. An expanding portion of a society's wealth is sucked into further boosting complexity, reducing its reserves to deal with unexpected contingencies. Now, he's essentially making what I would call a non-equilibrium thermodynamic argument here. Uh, According to thermodynamics, uh, systems like to return to thermodynamic equilibrium. I always think of this metaphorically in terms of a, a bowl with a ball in the bottom, and the ball wants to return to the bottom. The bowl, the ball wants to return to the bottom of the bowl. Uh, maintaining a complex system requires a lot of energy. It's like pushing the ball up the side of the bowl, and holding it there requires energy. You're moving. You're moving essentially a complex system away from thermodynamic equilibrium. It would naturally tend to move back to a situation of Uh, degraded energy, high entropy, uh, and to maintain the low entropy in a highly complex living system or society requires constant inputs of energy from the external system. Now, what Tainter is saying, essentially, is that holding this ball in the same place for society, simply to maintain the status quo, starts to consume insuperable amounts of energy over time because of diminishing returns to complexity. But Tainter's theory doesn't really explain why societies become more complex when it really doesn't do them any good to become more complex. Why do they go past the point of zero returns to complexity and even enter the domain of negative marginal returns? And why is rising complexity, why are the consequences of rising complexity so bad? Tainter doesn't address either of those points terribly effectively. So that leads me to the third component of my theory. And this is looking at the concepts of brittleness and resilience introduced by the the Canadian ecologist Buzz Halling in his work on panarchy theory. Now, this has, for me, been some of the work that's influenced me the most in the last decade or so. I find it enormously insightful. It's derived largely from Halling's work and a work of now many researchers around the world on ecological systems, especially forest ecologies. And what he says is that any successfully adaptive complex system can be represented in a three-dimensional space. And the trajectory of that system over time looks like this. Now, this may be small, so I'm just going to read what we've got here. This axis says connectedness. This axis says resilience decreasing in this direction, connectedness increasing in this direction, and potential, which I'll explain in a moment, increasing in this direction. They would use the example of a forest ecology. They would say that a forest starting out to grow, a young forest starting out to grow, 
uh, becomes more diverse in terms of its species diversity. It increases its potential, which basically means its information or knowledge content. So, for instance, the diversity of species, the amount of DNA or genetic information in the system. It becomes more and more connected over time as it becomes a larger forest with a greater diversity of species. But then eventually the diversity starts to decline because it maximizes its efficiency in terms of, in terms of productivity given the flows of solar energy and materials into the forest. So an example would be the forest will start out with a lot of nitrogen fixers, a lot of different species that fix nitrogen from the atmosphere and allow other plants to grow. But eventually, it'll actually start to eliminate nitrogen fixers because it doesn't need them all, and that's inefficient. So they actually get eliminated from the system, and it starts to rely increasingly on a relatively small number of nitrogen fixers. Well, you can imagine what the consequence of that is. The forest becomes very good at maintaining itself between certain homeostatic boundaries, at maintaining its, its, its equilibrium. But if it's pushed outside of those boundaries at any particular point, it goes into a collapse sequence. If it's hit by an exogenous shock, such as a fire, uh, a disease or a pathogen, uh, a drought, it won't effectively cope. It goes into a collapse sequence. Uh, as, as we move up this front phase here, we are becoming increasing potential and increasing connectedness, but we're losing resilience. We're moving to the front of the cube. As it goes into a collapse sequence, and this is a much faster pace, this is a slow process, and this is a much faster pace, resilience is, is, uh, is increased, connectedness declines, and potential declines. And the key thing here is that the system's coupling is loosened. All of the bits and pieces within the ecology, let's say a fire sweeps through, some of it's destroyed, but a lot of the rest of the system is no longer tightly coupled, which provides an opportunity for the system to recombine in novel ways in response to, in response to external changes. Breakdown turns out to be, or at least some form of breakdown, turns out to be an absolutely critical part of adaptation. This is an idea, by the way, we're actually quite comfortable with in the social sciences, at least economists are. It's Joseph Schumpeter's creative destruction. It's one way of interpreting this in a social frame. Now, The key thing here is that this growth phase that we're seeing, this increase in connectedness and complexity, happens largely independently of whether the system is trying to solve increasingly difficult problems. That's a critical difference from Joseph Tainter. Eventually, the system becomes so precisely adapted to a specific range of circumstances and so well organized as an efficient and productive system that when a shock pushes it beyond its homeostatic boundaries, it can't cope. High connectedness in the system allows the shock to travel much farther and faster across the system. Think of that fire sweeping across a forest that's old, that's accumulated a lot of organic material, uh, and in a sense, it's just ready to go once the fire hits, producing a generalized breakdown. The thermodynamic interpretation of this model is that as we move up this front loop of the Panarchy cycle, we are actually moving further and further from thermodynamic equilibrium, and we need larger and larger inputs of high-quality energy to maintain the system in a stable form, in an equilibrium form. Excuse me, to maintain, maintain its stability. It's because it's not in equilibrium. It's far from thermodynamic equilibrium. So let me just say a few closing words about how this relates to our current situation. I think this triplet of conjoined theories 
allows us to pro propose preliminary answers to the four questions I posed at the beginning of my talk. Not only is large-scale societal collapse in coming decades possible, I think that this perspective that I've developed here suggests that it may be quite likely and its probability is almost certainly rising. And let me tell you the story of the panarchy cycle drawing on Goldstone and Tainter as preliminary ideas, tell you the story of how we can think of the world in these terms. In the last half century, largely because of the enormous growth and relentless integration of the world's economy, humankind and the natural environment that it exploits have evolved into a single socio-ecological system, not socio-economic, socio-ecological system that for all intents and purposes encompasses the whole planet. It is becoming steadily more connected and efficient. It's essentially moved far up this front loop of the panarchy cycle. Much more potential information content, much higher connectedness, ultimately, I would say, much less resilient. In a highly connected, tightly coupled system like this, a financial crisis, a terrorist attack, or a disease outbreak can now have instantaneously destabilizing effects from one side of the world to another. There are also rising internal pressures, such as those I've outlined earlier in my talk. Managing these pressures requires increase in complexity, even more increase in complexity. Think about the, the institutions and technologies we're thinking of developing to deal with climate change and increasing energy inputs. Pumping billions of tons of carbon dioxide underground is going to take a heck of a lot of energy. Desalinizing water, moving people away from coastlines, all of this is going to take a lot of energy. This complexity appears to be producing diminishing returns in many respects, at least to date. It's not really solving our problems very well. At the same time, largely by coincidence, the world is entering a critical energy transition. And it's that contradiction that I think in many respects is at the heart of our challenge today. We need more complex institutions and technologies to deal with our more complex and more difficult problems. Yet the abundant, cheap, high-quality energy we need to cope with this complexity and to generate it will soon be steadily less available. Societies without access to energy to sustain rising complexity and to manage worsening internal stresses risk the kind of overload Goldstone and others identified. What might this kind of collapse look like? Now, at this point, I think we really are in a land of total speculation. I, have, I start my latest book by talking using a metaphor of a white wall. Our relationship to the future is if we're, it's the same as if we're driving down a road at night at high speed with very dense fog in front of us. We've got our bright lights on, but we can't see more than a couple of meters in front of, the, in front of our hood. The bright lights are like the best experts we have. They allow us to see perhaps just a little bit into the future, but really they just produce so much noise that it comes back in a random, in a random glare in our face. And we don't know whether the road is straight in front of us or curved or full of potholes, even though we're behaving because we're driving at high speed as if it is straight. We can't, the system is full of so many unknown unknowns, we're so ignorant of our ignorance that we can't have any really precise understanding of what the future will hold. It could be, though, that we could see a collapse at a global scale, unlikely, I think, but if, for example, terrorists simultaneously detonated nuclear weapons in two or three of the world's financial systems. I'll talk a little bit more this, about this this evening uh, in my talk at Ohio Wesleyan this evening. 
about what the consequences of that would be for the global economy. If you picked your targets right, you might lose uh, a significant fraction of global GDP almost instantaneously. More likely, though, I think this, this process would proceed in stages from weak peripheral areas in the global system towards the most powerful and complex core. Now, I don't want to leave you. When I finished my writing out my notes last night, I, that was where I ended. And I woke up this morning, I said, I, I can't leave them there. So I just want to say a couple of things for two minutes so that, so that we can get beyond this point of despair, because I think it actually is, a, is, is, a, is an argument that suggests that we're in real trouble and might lead to a certain amount of despair. I think it's worth recognizing that collapse comes in different forms some of them potentially very productive. And this is an argument I'm not going to develop at length right now. We can talk about it over the next few minutes if you like. But I think it's important to distinguish between types of collapse. It's not just we solve all the problems and everything is ideal and we live happily ever after, one possible future. And the only other possible, possible future we get is the Jared Diamond world of catastrophic collapse and it's game over. There's actually a continuum between those two poles and we're likely to fall somewhere in that continuum. There could be a variety of kinds of, of breakdown uh, of various severities. In fact, I like to distinguish between collapse as the catastrophic end of the spectrum and breakdown as something that might happen in between. And some of those forms of breakdown might actually be the kind of creative destruction that somebody like Schumpeter was referring to. This, as, as I mentioned before, has been determined by the people in the, working in the Resilience Alliance, the people who have followed in Buzz Hollings' footsteps, to be an essential feature of all highly adaptive systems. They all go through breakdown phases. The longer you try to maintain the system on this front loop, moving it further and further from thermodynamic equilibrium, increasing its connectedness, the further you get, the, the more you reduce resilience ultimately, and the larger your collapse and breakdown when it actually happens. Constraining breakdown so it isn't, doesn't have catastrophic implications means building in system resilience into all aspects of our societies, our technologies, our institutions, our political systems. And resilience basically means the capacity to withstand shock without falling apart. At the moment, in our discourse, we emphasize productivity and efficiency, economic productivity and efficiency, both of which tend to work against resilience, at least in the short term. We need to bring the concept of resilience into the core of our public policy discourse so that if there is crisis and shock in the future, which I expect there will be because of these underlying pressures, we don't get a cascading failure to the catastrophic end of the spectrum. Exploiting the opportunity that breakdown presents means dealing with the collective action problem of non-extremists. Now, I'm always struck, of course, by W.B. Yeats's famous expression, famous saying, that uh, uh, when things fall apart, when the crisis happens, when things fall apart, the worst are full of passionate intensity and the best lack all conviction. Extremists are networked, they're organized, they have resources, they know what they want, and they're often ready to go in a time of crisis. And the rest of us are all wandering around saying, gee, this is really bad, what do we do now? In many ways, my most fundamental argument and the issue I'm going to be exploring next in my research is how we deal with that collective action problem. Because if we're going to take advantage of these moments of contingency and opportunity that crisis may offer in the future, 
we need to start thinking now about what we're going to do then. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, and, and uh, wonderful question, what I would have expected uh, from you, and, and that's terrific. And uh, I'm not prepared to, I have a two-year-old little boy at home, and I'm not prepared to walk away from this problem and say that there's nothing we can do. Although I have to admit, when I look at what happened in the last few months in the Arctic, here's the issue. The longer we wait, the less scope there is for human agency. I think that's the bottom line. The material forces will start to dominate and squeeze out any possibility for constructive human agency, lots of destructive human agency, but constructive human agency, uh, if we postpone action on these issues further and further. So, uh, and, and it may be that that tipping, that threshold point, that point at which we are in a world where it doesn't really matter what we do, might be a lot closer. And that's what really is scaring a lot of climate scientists right now. It might be a lot closer than we think, that we thought in the past. In, in, at the end of my book, I propose four things, uh, three of which I think are relevant here, two of which I've mentioned. The first is we need to continue doing everything that we're doing on the management side, conventional management approaches to stuff like car climate change. In other words, every ton of carbon we keep out of the atmosphere is an important accomplishment. So we need to continue working at the institution building, developing carbon markets, getting a price on carbon, developing carbon trading mechanisms, uh, supporting entrepreneurial uh, technological innovation, stuff like that. That's all important. But given my reading of where we're going, it's not going to be enough. So the second thing is we need to accept that they're, and this is all about agency, right? We need to accept, I'm going to, I mentioned the four, the four points because the second stage is developing a particular mental attitude to a future that's going to be full of surprise. In other words, accept that it's going to change all the time. They're going to be very dramatic developments. Open your mind to that possibility. Don't deny it, which is where most of us are right at the moment. Don't try to hold on to the past because the past isn't going to be the way the future is. Uh, and look for opportunities in that change. Prepare for to seize opportunities in that change. That's what I call the prospective mind. So that's the second stage. The third stage is building in as much resilience as we can into every component of our societies and technological systems. Uh, I have lots of examples. Um, just one, you know. We're going to look at photographs of, of aerial photographs of Columbus or Toronto or Melbourne that were taken in 2007. We'll look at those if, they, if they're still around in 2050. But they're still around actually is a relevant issue because it's all, they're all going to be digital and they're all on degradable media. And it's quite likely we'll have big holes in terms of our record of, of the past by the time we get to 2050. But let's assume people look at those photographs, aerial photographs of these cities, and they'll see 
they'll see all those blank roofs, and they'll say, they'll say those that's incredible was an incredible waste of a resource. Those cities could have been producing, at the level of the individual household, 20 to 30 percent of the electricity they needed simply by exploiting the resource of those roofs with solar panels. Uh, in Canada, a cold climate, you could do it here too. You can generate 50 to 70 percent of the space heating you need to heat buildings like this in the winter simply by drilling into the ground and pumping heat out of the ground. Instead, we're connected into electrical grids that are demonstrably unstable. Uh, I mean, the, the power in downtown Toronto went off in the, in the middle of a business day for several hours just, to, just last week because of a small perturbation in the system. We saw Ohio, of course, is famous for what happened in August 2003, which put 30 million people into the dark. We've seen the same thing in, in Europe. And we're connected into a natural gas grid that extends all the way back, in Canada's case, to Alberta. And, oh, by the way, we've passed peak production of natural gas in North America. These are brittle systems. To the extent that we can have units within the system, cities, towns, villages, communities, even individual households producing some of their essential needs, goods and services, then the whole system becomes more resilient and less likely to have cascading of failures in the time of, a, in, in time of, of a external shock, which I think is going to be increasingly likely. Then the final stage in terms of agency is preparing now for what we're going to do in the future. And I think that this is fundamentally an issue of democracy. It's a collective action problem, but it's an issue of popular democracy. I think our, our, our existing in Western societies, political institutions are demonstrably failing to solve these problems for a whole bunch of reasons. But they, were, they evolved in the 18th and 19th centuries at the time when the fastest travel was by the speed of horse and almost all information was communicated verbally. And we're in a completely different world now but there is a, a domain potentially for democratic action and civil action uh, in the internet that I don't think is being effectively exploited. I think it's interesting that at the very time when humankind is facing these greatest challenges, greatest challenges it's ever faced, we have in place on the planet a rudimentary infrastructure for species-wide democracy. Now the internet for the most part right now is really just a venue for a kind of cacophony of narcissism. You know, we blog at each other and we strut around our egos and we bully each other. But then you see what's happening in some of these open source domains on the internet. And, and you, see, you see situations where large groups of people are acting much smarter as a group than they are as individuals. And that's the trick. Collectively, human beings, generally, as you expand the size of the group, act stupider and stupider outside of, let's say, markets in political and social affairs. At the level of the planet, in terms of our ecological behavior, we've got about as much intelligence as a protozoan in a petri dish. You know, we're consuming all our resources and we're pooping up our petri dish. I would give any non-mentally handicapped person on the planet the job of running global affairs, and we'd be a lot better off than we are right now. Now, somehow we have to turn that equation around. And this is, you know, collective action problem solving is about making the whole smarter than the sum of the bits. And, and and, and this is where you get into the details of constitutional design, voting systems, decision-making procedures within something like a large open source system. So the argument that I'm going to develop in my next work, very much one about social and personal and political agency, is, is about how we try to implement large-scale open architecture democracy on the internet, involving not thousands or tens of thousands of people, but 
tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of people to try to work together to address some of these problems, but also think about what we're going to do collectively when crisis happens to make sure extremists don't capture the, the high ground in terms of the social and, and political and psychological terrain at the time. Does that answer your question? Let's go over here. Why do you think a Green Party is so successful in Europe? It's a really good question, and I think it's not an easy one to answer. Um, although the Green Party in Canada is now standing at 15% in the polls. Now, we have a first-pass post-electoral system, so they won't get any seats. They're at 15 to 20% in the polls in Ontario. It's coming up to an election right now. Still won't get any seats um, because it's distributed pretty evenly. But they are. St one of the good things is that they now have access to substantial public funds for campaigning. That was an important threshold across. It was at 5%. So they now get millions of dollars of public funds. And that has a reinforcing effect. Um, the Green Party is not, from what I understand, particularly strong in France either, whereas it's been strong for a long period of time in, in Germany. I think it's been regarded as something of a protest party for a long time, and then it's been sort of contaminated and, and corrupted by getting into power in Germany and being part of coalitions and things like that, and it comes to be seen as just one of the same as the rest. Uh, I, I, I think that what's happening in the green parties is very interesting because it's not a left clearly left it's not a, a, a stereotypically left-wing ideological agenda um, i'm more familiar with the platform in canada than anywhere else but sure they're environmentalists but they're fiscally very conservative it's it's uh, the underlying cultural premise or norm seems to be prudence in management of all kinds of resources uh, I think that what will happen in many societies as we start to see more and more significant shocks from things like climate change is that green parties will start to, start to increase their proportion of the vote total. What the long-term outcome will be, I can't say. The difference between North America and Europe, I think, is, is a complicated cultural story and, and, and probably relates, too, to electoral institutions such as proportional representation. <laughs> it, was, it was heading towards you. Um, oh, yeah, it's just behind the bag, just by your foot there. Absolutely well, they're not as big as yet in India. Not yet, no, no. not yet anyway. I just thought it was uh, slightly ironic. Um, my question has to do with the mentality um, changes that you talked about, about how we have to have a, a survival, a, um, a mentality the future of expecting these sudden changes. And in talking about how to mitigate the effects of climate change, how likely do you think it is that these attitudes will change to achieve the kind of dramatic effects that you're talking about? getting solar panels on every roof, there are ways to definitely achieve that. But first, you've got to get people behind it and right. people willing to right. you know, put funds into that and put funds into right. technology. And so well, one of the things I'm perplexed by, and I haven't got this, the explanation of this situation fully worked out, but it does perplex me, is given the threat that climate change is now demonstrably presenting to the future, especially of young people, is why there aren't large numbers of young people in the streets rallying on this issue. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk to large classes at the University of Toronto and say, you know, this is your future. 
right? Why Your future is melting in the Arctic. And this is not about getting ships through the Arctic. One of the things that frustrates me, and this is another part of the explanation, is that the story is not effectively told in many cases. People think that this is about, oh, well, the Northwest Passage will be open. That's great. You know, we're going to save shipping costs and stuff. Air circulation over the Arctic uh, determines weather around the, the whole northern hemisphere. Uh, the Arctic region makes up 9% of the surface area of the, of the northern hemisphere. Taking away the ice and replacing it with open water changes the energy balance for the whole northern part of the planet. It will change, among other things, the course of the jet streams, which determine things like the Asian monsoon patterns. Right? So, so we got, we're going to have bigger things to worry about than whether we can get ships through the Arctic and whether we're going to be able to explore for oil there. So I think part of it is that, is that there's a lack of comprehension of the, of the story. I think that there's a, uh, there's a certain eye generation feature here that people are jacked in, plugged into their iPods. You know, they, there's, a, there's a kind of you know, virtual thing going on with people in second life. You know, well, I don't like this world, so I'm going to go somewhere else. And, and, and yet, we've seen in the past that young people and mothers have often been the agents of very rapid social change. And this can be a, a social phenomenon, like Gold, um, uh, Malcolm Gladwell will call a social contagion, a, you know, contagion effect. It can happen very fast. So in the early 1960s, uh, mothers discovered that their breast milk, as well as all the milk in the store shelves, uh, was contaminated with strontium-90 from nuclear explosions in the atmosphere. And, uh, and then doctors came out and said, this could appreciably increase the risk of childhood leukemia. So moms were literally thought, I'm poisoning my child as I'm breastfeeding the child. Very quickly, they mobilized themselves by the tens of thousands. And, uh, and across, across the Western world, and provided the political cover for politicians to implement the partial test ban treaty, which put nuclear explosions underground. And that happened within a couple of years. I think this is a, you know, this is a quintessentially, you know, this is a consciousness agency framing issue. This is about how we frame this problem. If we frame it the right way, we might be able to encourage mobilization. And that's, I think, a very urgent research task. And it's got to have something to do with our kids because our kids are the ones who give us a long time horizon. We look through our children 80 years out into the future. And I can't tell you how many times I've had people in my audiences come up to me and say, say well, first of all, they ask if I have kids. And they say how worried they are about their children. Instead of framing this, I mean, the Stern report was really important. But, you know, you got tangled up in discount rates and, you know, a, a, a complex argument about, about uh, economic consequences and the economic, economic eco, excuse me, the methodology that was used uh, to, to model future costs of climate change. Instead, we need to focus on more normative issues and, and fundamentally more emotional issues. You know, we, human beings have emotion for a reason. We evolved emotion for a reason. It helped us survive. And, and I think we need to be more emotionally evocative in this conversation in many ways to try to encourage mobilization. I think it's just interesting that so many students come in my class and talk about the debate that's going on and about how it's unclear 
there's no debate. There's, there's no debate, debate anymore. Science, but in the popular press, it's still perpetuating debate. You turn on the Sunday morning talk shows, and they're talking about global warming. They've got one guy saying it's happening and one guy saying it's not. Yeah. And it's still framed as debate. Yeah, and this is particularly... This is particularly rampant in the United States. There's been a lot of good analysis of the media where they tend to, in the, in the name of balance, they tend to actually bias the discussion towards the skeptical argument. Um, the, the last nails in the coffin of this kind of skepticism were, were driven home about two weeks ago by a pair of papers that appeared, uh, uh, the, the most important of which established definitively that the warming that we've seen in the last 40 years has nothing to do with changes in solar radiation on the surface of the planet, with the intensity of solar radiation, sunspots, you know, orbital variations, whatever, volcanoes. They, they just eliminated that. The, the evidence is very clear now. Uh, it's a ground war. It's one conversation. It's one rebuttal. It's one conference, one workshop, one op-ed, one letter to the editor at a time, one vote. But the critical thing, just to finish, is that this pressure can build up for a long time. And then things can change dramatically very quickly. Social processes are nonlinear. You might not see the accumulating, uh, the accumulating concern, the accumulating potential political action until things coalesce very rapidly around some kind of catalyzing or crystallizing issue. We thought that maybe Katrina would be it. It didn't turn out to be it, but there will be others in the future. Andrew, one last quick question. I didn't realize it's not right. I can be quick. Go ahead. Quick question, uh, quick well, answer. It does build on this. Um, you know, when I think about the literature on social media and some of the Well, that's a really good point. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if it's possible. I don't know if, on average, we're equipped cognitively to do this. But I think a very important part of the kind of shift we need to make in coming decades, and maybe even sooner than that, is a shift in the popular understanding of the ontology of systems, moving away from understanding them as machines, like clocks, understanding them as complex systems. Uh, now, when you talk about something like the whole is more than the sum of the parts, you talk about emergence, you say the whole is more than the sum of the parts, people get it. You talk about nonlinearity, you say the straw that broke the camel's back, people get it, right? A lot depends. These, these notions of, that are common in complex systems theory and complex systems thinking are actually in many cases incorporated in the aphorisms of our day-to-day -day lives, but they aren't seen as a connected set. It's not seen as, a diff as an alternative ontology to the mechanistic ontology. So most po in, in public policy, and most people live within a mechanistic ontology, and the assumption is that there are experts out there who understand how the system works. And if we need, have a problem, you tweak a little bit of it, and cause is proportional to effect. You know, we, we have a, a confidence crisis because of the subprime mortgage problem, and, and we increase the, the discount rate, or decrease the discount rate, 
and, and, and tweak the system in various other ways, and, and we solve the problem. We need to get people into a new world where they understand, as I was saying to Alex earlier, one of the smartest things that Donald Rumsfeld ever said, which was that the world is full of unknown unknowns, you know, that we're ignorant of our own ignorance, and that it's full of surprises, and those surprises don't have to be bad things, that we can, that, that we can exploit them in really exciting and useful ways. Now, that's, I, I question in my own mind, given the complexity of the problems, and given, and given our, our media desire, policy desire, and human desire for simplicity, whether we can make this leap. But without it, I don't think we're, we're going to solve our problems. This has to be a collective transformation of consciousness. And just one last point. We have seen this kind of thing before in the evolution of, of human societies. You know, Carl Jaspers talked about the axial age, the transformation of human societies, five different civilizations that were largely independent of each other between 200 and 600 BC, all changed their underlying cosmology and ontology at the same time laid the groundwork for monotheistic religion, for separation of human beings from nature, for our basic notions of rationality, for separations of human beings from, from the spiritual world. We may need something of equivalent magnitude now in terms of a fundamental shift in consciousness on this planet. It sounds wacky, but the interesting thing is it has happened before. It's very clearly documented, which is why I'm thinking that the title of my next book might be The Second Axial Age. This is a, uh, a, a perfect beginning for the year. Unfortunately, it may be a high point. You've set the bar extremely high for all of us. Thank you very much. Good. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Hi. Hi. I'm a dissertation student. My dissertation is on the